But this is only my second time preaching. And so um, I promise Eric has vetted everything I'm going to say. So nothing heretical. Um, but if you don't agree with something, you take it up with him, not me. Um, so like I said, I'm Peter. Um, I finished college at UCLA, and then I decided to do more school. So I'm doing research in infectious disease. Um, so I'm actually in a PhD program. Um, and I'm trying, to do, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to become a scientist. So I'm still a student, like you guys. All right. Um, but maybe a stereotype about being a scientist is that, um, that we're know-it-alls. Um, and I'm going to tell you a story just to prove you wrong. Okay, so for, for the longest time, I thought that you know, the advertisements that you see on TV or there's a lot on YouTube now, right, um, that they don't really affect me. Um, and you know, they're annoying and you have to get through them, but I was always confused about why companies would pay, like companies like Nike or Adidas, why they would pay money <laughs> to air their ads on these platforms. I mean, if the ads don't really make me want to buy their products, then what the heck is the point? Well, a couple of years ago, I was scrolling through Facebook and I came upon this poll and it wasn't a public one. It was like a private one just for me. And it was, they were asking me if a specific advertisement is helpful. And of course, as I just explained, ads are useless. So that's what I said. Um, but the funny part is that this ad was actually to promote a new line of Adidas sneakers. And I just happened to be wearing Adidas Ultra Boost and I'm actually wearing Adidas right now. Um, <laughs> And so it did get me thinking about the kinds of things I shop for now and where I shop for them. And I realized that I have this subconscious bias for Adidas over Nike and for Uniqlo and J.Crew over H&M. And so obviously I bought into this message of the ad that their product will make me happy. And I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that they were right because now my wardrobe is only Uniqlo, J.Crew, and Adidas. Um, but at least I learned my lesson, right? That I was completely unaware of the powerful influences of these ads and how they shape what choices I make for my wardrobe. So actually, as we're going to see today, the Corinthians, they were unaware of powerful influences, influences in their life. And, and it was dangerous for them because they were actually being influenced by demons. So I'm going to have you guys turn to 1 Corinthians 10 now, um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to set the groundwork a little bit. So in the past three weeks, we've had three different preachers, um, Keith, Gavin, and then Pastor Eric. And so now we have four different speakers, but actually we've all been discussing the same thing since chapter 8. So in chapter 8, verse 4, um, we actually see that it was a popular belief among the Corinthian community to think that an idol has no real existence. And they were right about that. That's true. The Corinthians, they understood that the idols that are present in these pagan temples they're not actually real. There's only one true God, our God, which is why they felt that it was, it was insignificant that they could participate in these food sacrifice to idols, and it's okay. They're just enjoying meat, so who cares if there's some harmless rituals done to it. And so as a response, in chapter 8, Paul, Paul discourages partaking in food offered to idols because it's going to stumble um, weaker brothers or sisters. And in chapter 9, Paul extends this argument to say that we should actually surrender everything for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And so he's appealing to the Corinthians from a self-denying perspective to follow Jesus' example. And now in chapter 10, Paul gives another reason that they should not participate in eating food offered to idols. And I would say a more severe one. 
He says that these idols and their corresponding rituals actually have demonic associations. And so participating in this way is, is actually not just selfish, but it compromises their integrity to Jesus. And so much like I was blinded by my pride and my skewed understanding of how ads work, the Corinthians were blinded by their self-reliance and skewed understanding of idolatry. And in doing so, they were putting themselves in spiritual danger. Okay, so we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 10, from 1 through 13. And as a disclaimer, these verses contain a lot of Old Testament references. And maybe the Old Testament is boring to you, but trust me that the, these stories will really enrich our time. So don't tune out when we read through it. Okay, so chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is God's word. Um, let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for the privilege to, to study your word and, and to teach it. Um, God, I pray that you would speak through me. God, and as we learn about your faithfulness, God, would we be challenged, but also encouraged? Um, God, would your, would your word be made clear tonight and would the spirit work in, in all of our hearts? In Christ, we pray. Okay, so our key idea today is that God's faithfulness challenges our self-reliant tendencies and frees us to actually trust his promises. Okay, so that's in your notes. And we're going to break this up into three parts. God's faithfulness, his warning, and finally his hope. Okay, so first, don't miss God's faithfulness. Don't miss God's faithfulness. Okay, so we're going to start from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, so hopefully you, that some of these words are triggering some Old Testament stories already. So Paul is using these keywords, under the cloud and through the sea to refer to Israel's iconic moment when they were saved right, saved from slavery out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And Paul knew that the Corinthians, they would pick up on these phrases, and they would, how, it, would, it would conjure up images of God's deliverance. Okay, and if we continue, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so here, Paul is again referring to the crossing of the Red Sea. He's continuing it, but now he's actually extending it. Because this time, he's saying that this event is actually the first allusion to baptism. And that's because crossing of the Red Sea symbolizes the crossing over from a life of slavery to a life of freedom. 
So it's very much like baptism for us, right? The death of our old selves and the, the, and the proclamation of our new selves. Okay, so Paul is solidifying the connection between baptism for the Israelites and baptism for the Corinthians. And he's trying to, again, provide images of God's faithfulness and his deliverance. Okay, so now we're going to move on to verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For he drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so there's a lot in here, but Paul is speaking figuratively again. The food and drink are supposed to trigger reminders of God's provision for the Israelites. So remember in the Old Testament that God provided manna for them every morning, and that whenever Moses would strike a rock with his staff, water would flow out. And this rock would actually figuratively follow the Israelites, providing water whenever they needed it. And Paul calls these provisions spiritual because they were gifts that were supernatural and they were miraculous. And actually, Paul goes so far as to compare this rock to Christ. He's saying that because this rock is associated with the redemptive work of God, so Christ is the culmination of God's greatest redemptive work in history. And again, Paul's hammering home the idea that God faithfully provided for the Israelites. Okay, so don't, so don't miss this, right? The Israelites received spiritual, special spiritual privileges from God as his chosen people. And Paul doesn't explicitly make the connection to the Corinthians until verse 6, but we know that that's the purpose of bringing up the Israelite story in verses 1 through 5. He's connecting Israel's story with the Corinthian story. Just as Israel received blessing, so the Corinthians received blessing. But the reason that Paul is using the Exodus story to connect these two generations is actually found in verse 5. So look with me in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now this verse stands in direct contrast with the epic portrayal of God's faithfulness that we just saw. So even though he rescued them and he provided for them, the Israelites, they didn't please him. Well, why not? Because the Israelites, they rebelled against God and they turned to idols. And we know this from verse 6, that it was their idolatrous and evil desires that led to their demise, where most of them were overthrown in the desert, or more vividly, their corpses were strewn across the desert. But verse 5 is actually also referenced to Numbers 14 where God is provoked to anger because the Israelites failed to trust in God's plans and they grumbled against him. Right, so even after God has gifted them everything, it's this attitude of entitlement that elicits God's judgment. In fact, his judgment did actually come to pass because only two people out of the entire wilderness generation actually made it into the promised land. Not even Moses made it. And I think... At this point, the Corinthians would have started to see the connection between their story and, the Israel, and Israel's story. The Corinthians were recklessly associating themselves with idols by eating food sacrificed to idols. And they were doing so out of an attitude of entitlement. Which actually makes no sense because the Corinthians were bought by Jesus so that they can worship him and please him. Not so that they can mingle with idols and justify their actions with their religiosity. Doing so invites God's righteous judgment. And what about you? Maybe you think that you can get away with associating with idols. Maybe your pursuit of people's approval 
through grades or in sports. Maybe you think that your church attendance on Sundays or Friday nights, that makes up for living however you want during the week. But this is actually the same attitude that invites God's judgment. Okay, so what's the point of all this then? Why is Paul using the Exodus story to make his point? I mean, sure, it's famous among every Christian at that time, for sure, and I'm sure many of us know that know these stories as well. But I think Paul's real reason is to remember the past so that we can be thankful now. Remember the past to be thankful now. Remember the Israelites and don't miss God's faithfulness in their lives. And what about us? Can we take stock of how God has been faithful to in, our, in our lives? Maybe there are, there are the big things like surviving a major car accident. Or the small things like being able to enjoy Pokemon Shield. Or maybe the fact that if you are a Christian, God rescued you from the slavery to our idols, just as he rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. God showed us miracles, perhaps not as flashy as parting the Red Sea, but the transformation of our dying hearts. God provides for us day in and day out, through our parents for most of us. Are these not signs of God's grace that warrant a thankful response? Yet I think if I can be so bold to say that all of us, including myself, dabble in the idol temples of our, of our world on a daily basis. At Lighthouse, we talk about idols as something that takes the place of Jesus or something that we think we need in addition to Jesus. Your, your reputation as a volleyball player, your alone time for video games, your popularity among your friends. Well, these idols are intimately tied to our ability to recognize God's faithfulness in our lives. So for example, if we value reputation and popularity more than we value God, we become enslaved by the opinion of others. And we become more anxious, dwelling on every little thing someone has said or done. But on the flip side, if we value God more than anything, we will proactively look out for God's faithfulness in our lives. And the less appealing our reputation, our alone time, and our popularity will become because we understand more and more the danger of idol worship and the joy of turning to God. And that's really at the crux of God's faithfulness. Yes, he punished the Israelites because he is a jealous God. But he also relentlessly pursued them, pursued their idolatrous hearts because he wanted to help them find real happiness. He harshly condemns idol worship. Not only because he is a jealous God who wants his people to give glory where it's due, but also because he's a loving God who knows that true happiness can only be found in him. And that's why God's judgment is, is actually a manifestation of God's faithfulness. Yes, we want to please God and we want to avoid his discipline, but also our God disciplines us out of love for us. So let's not take for granted our blessings and remember God's faithfulness, both in the renewal of our hearts and daily provisions. Because if we miss it, we will become entitled idolatrous people. And that leads us to our, our second point. Don't miss God's warning. Don't miss God's warning. So in the rest of these verses, Paul expands on why and how idols are actually associated with real evils. In fact, all of verses 1 through 12 are written down as an extended warning. If you look back to verse 1, 
It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And then if we look at verses 6 and 11, they actually bookend this whole section. It says, these things took place as examples for us. So Paul is making it abundantly clear that he's trying to draw parallels between the Israelites and the Corinthians. In fact, verse 11 says that they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And what this means for the Corinthians is that the Israelites' story was written down to instruct the Corinthians. And precisely because these stories foreshadow the spiritual dangers that the Corinthians now face. And remember, the Corinthians are in danger because they believed in their self-sufficient religiosity to keep them safe from idols. Remember, their rationale for eating food offered to idols is that these idols hold no power. And this stubborn self-reliance is dangerous because it's a forgetfulness of God's power. But even more serious than this, Paul argues that such self-reliant tendencies are actually influenced by the presence of demons. And when Paul talks about desiring evil as the Israelites did in verse 6, it's evil, but not just because they turned away from God, but also because they turned to idols that represent demons. And that's actually more clear if if we read verses 19 and 20, which is just a few verses down. It says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so Paul is responding directly to the Corinthians. He agrees that idols are not real gods, but he makes the important distinction that eating food offered to idols is to actually sit at the table with demons. And so to believe that they can recklessly associate themselves with idols and write it off as insignificant is foolish. The Corinthians were overestimating their strength and underestimating Satan's strength. So Paul warns the Corinthians to stay away from food sacrificed to idols. It's a matter of life or death, God or Satan and his demons. And don't get me wrong, as much as God and Satan represent polar opposites of good and evil, Satan is is still a created being. And even though he is a demonic spiritual being, his power is still limited and it's still finite. God has dominion and rule even even over Satan. And Eric actually preached on this from Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 a while back. And so take a listen if if you're interested. But to summarize, there are two equal and opposite errors that we can fall into as we think about demonic activity. On the one end, were the Corinthians, who believed that, who who actually didn't believe, or they were ignorant of demonic presence. And this is dangerous because even though Satan is not omnipotent, he is still real, and he still imposes his power over the world. But the other end of the spectrum is actually equally dangerous, to believe that all evil in the world is due to Satan's influences. That gives too much power and agency to Satan, while not enough ownership that our sin is a cause of evil as well. And it's because the Corinthians didn't understand this dynamic that Paul uses the Exodus story to correct them. And and so it is with us as well. Just as the stories of Israel, Israel were written down to instruct and correct the Corinthians, they were written down for us. And maybe a, a quick exhortation for us is, what we read in the Old Testament actually matters. 
they're, they're stories about us just as much they are as they are about Israel. And what the Israelites experience, we experience. And so how do we actually make the Old Testament relevant for us? Well, we can follow Paul's example. He makes parallel connections between the Israelites and the Corinthians. Circumstances were different, cultures were, diff- cultures were different, but fundamental heart problems are still the same. And it's our job, the collective Christians, not just Pastor Eric's, to figure out ways that we are different and ways that we are similar. And Paul actually exemplifies this for us in verses 7 through 10. He describes three specific examples from the Israelite journey in order to expand and apply them to the Corinthian situation. So as we go through these three examples, consider how we might be able to expand and apply the Corinthian situation to ours. And the mini outline for these three examples is detailed in your notes. Okay, so first, watch your worship. Watch your worship. So we're going to look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, so this quote is a reference to Exodus 32, which is when Moses had gone up into Mount Sinai to make the Ten Commandments. And instead of waiting faithfully, the Israelites actually made a golden calf, and they deemed it their god. And in the presence of this idol, Paul is quoting, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And of course, Paul is making the obvious connection of of eating and drinking here, very similarly to the Corinthians eating food offered to idols. But also, the word play here refers to the Jewish tradition of dancing and worshiping around the golden calf often associated with the appalling imagery of sexual immorality. And so Paul begins with this first example, to warn the Corinthians that what they are doing is no different than the Israelites. The Israelites ate and drank before the presence of the golden calf, and it led to more serious offenses like sexual immorality. Maybe you can imagine a student who gets caught cheating on an exam in college. That probably wasn't their first time cheating probably started in high school or maybe middle school by copying a friend's homework five minutes before it's due. They didn't want to take a hit on their grade, so they did it. Maybe a couple weeks later, they take someone's idea for a group project. And on and on it goes, right? Over several years of not getting caught in middle school, high school, they become more and more confident and less cautious. And before you know it, they're expelled from their dream college. And likewise, the Corinthians, they're, they're eating and drinking at idol temples not realizing the danger that they're in. They're worshiping these idols and putting themselves in more vulnerable positions to be influenced by demons. And I would even argue that they have already been influenced by demons because as we saw in the previous nine chapters, they they created divisions in the church and they were already participating in, in sexual immorality. So what about us? Where is our worship directed towards? Because worshiping our idols is to sit at the table of demons, to be influenced by them. Our second um, warning is to watch your conduct. Watch your conduct. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So this is a reference to Numbers 25. And in that story, the Israelites were being seduced by Moabite women. And and these women, they invited the Israelites 
to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And that kindled God's anger, and many of them were killed by a plague. And here, Paul is connecting the Israelites' conduct, right, so their sexual immorality, with their worship. That sexual immorality is actually a window into who they worship. And in this case, it was the Moabite, the, the Moabite idols and the demons that those idols represent. So he's challenging the Corinthians to watch their conduct because their affiliation with idols reveals that who they really worship is not God, but the demons that they're associating with. And I, I think we can understand what Paul's trying to do here. An, an analogy is that you know, we all agree that murder is, is horrendous. But we often overlook the fact that small annoyances and, and frustrations are actually sins as well. And that murder and frustrations, they actually stem from the same heart of anger. They're not different in kind, but in degrees. And so, so Kairos, watch your conduct because your behavior is a window into who you worship. And if we are constantly seeking the approval of our friends or the next best tech, then maybe who we are worshiping is not God, but the demons that these idols are associated with. And third, watch your heart. Watch your heart. So verses 9 and 10, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, so verse 9 is referring to Numbers 21. And in, in, in Numbers 21, the Israelites were complaining to God and to Moses. This is what the Israelites actually said. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Okay, do you hear the entitlement? How they feel like now they deserve food? And not just food, but better food, because they have manna. They've lost the wonder of God's endless provision. And now they're testing God's patience with their complaints. It's almost like they're asking for God to send them back into slavery. And in a similar way, Paul is saying that the Corinthians are putting Christ to the test by eating at idol temples and associating themselves with idols rather than being satisfied and content with God's provision for them. It's as if they were undoing Jesus' work on the cross. They're going back into slavery of sins, even though Jesus freed them. And to be honest, I think maybe we do the same thing. Our parents give us food and water every day, or maybe it's electronics. They buy you phones, iPads, computers for you to enjoy. But soon enough, there's always the feeling of wanting the next thing, the newer thing. And by our mistrust of God's provision and by our complaints, we're actually in line to incur the same wrath of God and to be destroyed by God's destroying angel. So watch your heart. Be wary of grumbling and evaluate why you are not content. And I think the reason that Paul ends this series of examples with grumbling is because it's the most sinister. It's the most subtle and the easiest to dismiss. And I think in our current culture, complaining is maybe even, associated, maybe even celebrated as a way to connect with other people. But this is dangerous because we, we, we completely miss the danger of complaining, which is, which is why Paul makes this claim that it's precisely this grumbling that displeased God and led to the demise of the Israelites. Why? 
Well, because complaining is Satan's playground. It's such a slippery slope because of its deceptive nature. The perfect tool for Satan to whisper in our ears. Yes, you do deserve recognition for that. Yes, you had a long day, so you deserve, you deserve your alone time. Yes, just one more game. In fact, complaining and grumbling is actually succumbing to Satan's temptation. And Paul uses grumbling to illustrate what the Corinthians are doing is no different from the Israelites. Because complaining is saying that God is not enough. And in that, we're also saying that something else is enough, and that's idolatry. So when the Corinthians eat food offered to idols, they're expressing that God is not enough and that they need this food. And that's the danger. The Corinthians are allowing themselves to be manipulated into thinking that God is not enough. And in fact, I think their misplaced confidence in themselves is evidence already that Satan has been leading them astray. And that's exactly what he wants to do, right? If you are unaware of his influences, yet he was able to entice you away from God, then his job is done. Well, what does all this mean? Well, for us, our idols are not physical statues. They're not golden calves. Our idols are our relationships, comforts, control. It means that when we idolize, the, idolize these things, we we are worshiping things that are not real gods, and definitely not the one true God. But more than that, it also means that we're aligning ourselves with Satan. It means that when our lives are primarily about hanging out with the most popular people, lounging for hours in a man cave, manipulating everything to go our ways, we're actually sitting at the table of demons. Yes, these idols are things that we place too much value in, and because we are sinners, we will gravitate towards them. But importantly, these, these idols are so enticing because Satan uses them to promise what only God can promise, happiness, peace, and pleasures. And that's why Paul sounds so adamant and urgent. It's the crux and motivation for verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul's saying that those of you who are confident in yourselves that you will not be led astray, take heed. Don't underestimate the demons that are, that are constantly influencing you. And when you consider the idols that swirl around your life, Satan promises that those idols can give you happiness and peace, that God is not enough. And if you think that you can withstand these demonic realities based on your own merits and your own religious practices, then take heed because you will fall. So what props up your life against Satan's false promises? Is it your religious activities, your Christian parents, your Christian friends? And again, maybe your church attendance, maybe even how often you read your Bible, but is there real fellowship there? And this is the kind of deceptive self-reliance that Satan thrives on. But in the face of these demonic realities, Paul offers hope to crush the power of Satan. And that's our, our third point and our last one. Don't miss God's hope. Don't miss God's hope. Let's look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Here, I think we're really seeing Paul's compassion. The word temptation here is really multifaceted. And I think we understand it kind of in a one-dimensional way. So on the one hand, we understand that we're often tempted to look for happiness and security from our friends, our reputation, our extracurriculars. And we're tempted to idolize these things because we're sinners and because of Satan. And so I think, I think that part is, is true and we understand that. But more than that, the word temptation here actually means testing. Testing brought on by external factors. Okay, so for context, remember that most of the Corinthians are not Jewish. They were, they were Gentile converts. And so they still live in a very secularized society. And in that time, if you completely abandon all associations with idols, then you're actually inviting hostility from your non-Christian friends and peers and neighbors. And, and that's not too different from our society now, right? Um, maybe an example, I think we as Christians, I think we can do a much better job loving people who are same-sex attracted. But at the end of the day, we simply can't advocate for homosexual lifestyles. And I think this lack of advocacy for the LGBTQ community has already invited opposition against us and has already invited persecution against us. So, so in this background of persecution, it's not hard to imagine that perhaps the Corinthians were maybe even hoping that eating food offered to idols would be okay. Because then they would be able to avoid persecution and avoid sin, avoid compromising their integrity. But that's the thing, right? That's, that's kind of Paul's point. You can't have it both ways. That's Satan's lies manifesting in their dangerously skewed understanding of idols. Because the Corinthians are actually sinning by eating food offered to idols. They are actually compromising their integrity. And they are putting themselves in spiritual danger. Now in light of this, Paul's response is, really, is actually really empowering. There are two parts to his response. Hope when we fail and hope against Satan. So the first part of, of verse 13 says that no testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning, when we experience temptation, when we experience testing, others have gone through it before. And there are people who can help because they've experienced the same temptation. When you're afraid that hanging out with that one person sitting alone is going to destroy your reputation. When you, maybe you're afraid that using your time to serve the church will detract from your athletic or your academic success. Maybe you're afraid of talking about Jesus with your friends. But if you're afraid, you're not alone. And you're, you are supported by your church family. And, and we, the church, we're God's divine help. We are God, God's divine help manifested. We're God's faithfulness manifested in the dark, temptation-filled world. And this community aspect has actually been present from verse 1, where Paul writes that the Israelites are our fathers, our ancestors. And when he, talks, when he talks about the Corinthians in that way, he knows that they are predominantly Gentile converts, right? So they're not physical descendants of Israel. They're not Jewish. But what Paul means is that the Corinthians are Christians, grafted into God's family, and they fully belong to Israel. So the Israelite story is not just an example for the Corinthians, but it's, it's a story of their authentic ancestors. And it's actually their own story. So this temptation, this testing, 
the Israelites experienced it as well. And the Corinthians experienced it. And we experience it. But you are not alone. So if you're feeling hopeless because you're trying your hardest to flee from the slavery of pleasing people all the time, always looking for the next thing, if you're entrenched in pornography, ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. A strength that you are depending on God's faithfulness and not your own. And for all of us, let's step up as the church, as Kairos. Let's step up to our call as God's covenant people, as representatives of his faithfulness. Let's enter each other's lives so that we actually know what our temptations are. Yes, bond over homework and sports and memes, but let that not be our only conversation. When you are tempted, lean into your communion. And if we continue in verse 13, Paul says that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So contrary to popular belief and contrary to what society tells us a lot, the way of escape from temptation isn't, what you won't, isn't that you won't be tempted anymore, but actually to endure in the face of temptation. I think we're often falsely promised that if we change our circumstances, then we'll be given relief and we'll be, we'll be given escape. If I just get through this test, this class this year, then I'll be good. Maybe, maybe that's true for a little bit, but the hopelessness of living this way is that those will never end. There will always be the next hurdle to jump over. And I think this is how Paul redefines what it really means to escape. That when we experience temptation, it is actually an invitation to lean into God's grace. Because if we're always given relief through better circumstances, we would not need to depend on God. We'd just be looking for better circumstances, always waiting. And that provokes God to jealousy because then we're not trusting in, in the living God. So there's hope when we experience temptation. God invites us to lean into him and don't battle alone because you don't need to. But God also provides hope against Satan by offering a way of escape through Jesus. I remember one time, a lot of us advisors went to do an escape room together. Um, and we went to the back in time one. Um, and I know many of you guys enjoy doing escape rooms. We've talked about this. Um, but in case you don't know, I pulled a description from the website. An escape room the live action experience where you and your team attempt to solve puzzles, complete challenges, and decipher clues to complete the mission and make it out of the room. Okay, so that, that was actually the first time I ever did an escape room. And for us, for our team, the theme was Salem Witch Hunt. Okay, and um, I mean, we did, we, did, we did beat it, but, or finish it, get out, of, get out of it. But I made a few observations. One, I'm useless at escape rooms. Um, I think I actually slowed down our team because I would pick up a clue and think that it's just decoration. Um, two, you're, you're allowed three hints, and these hints are given over like a speaker system. And so it kind of felt like we're asking God for help and he's talking to us. Okay. Three, because it's, it's a Salem witch hunt, every so often we would hear this creepy cackle. And I didn't, I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to embarrass myself, but I, I, sometimes I jumped and I screamed a couple of times <laughs> because I was scared. But also because that cackle really reminds me of Satan. 
And you know, I think I, I think I have fun. Actually, one of the one of the FAQ questions <laughs> on the website asks, "Are your rooms scary?" And the answer that's given is, each room is designed with a unique theme. Most of our rooms are not scary. Okay. They, they do say most, granted, but that's pretty misleading because at least this one was scary, right? But the point is that maybe you're like me and you associate Satan with these overtly dark and spiritual themes. But I think that's a mistake, and I think it's a dangerous one. Because then we only look for Satan's influences in obviously dark and spiritual places. And that's kind of the misunderstanding, and that's the kind of misunderstanding that got the Corinthians into trouble in the first place, not taking demonic influences seriously. We tend to think that Satan entices us in extravagant ways. But actually, Satan really works in the ordinary and in the day-to-day. -day. And we don't have to turn there, but if you'll remember in Genesis 3, it was the serpent's questioning that led to Eve's questioning. And we have to be aware of where Satan entices us. His enticement is always subtle, and it appeals to our desires. And so when Eve is tempted by the serpent to disobey God and to eat of that fruit that she was told not to, she tragically decides to disobey him. Now, her disobedience was rooted in the belief that God does not have her best interest at heart. That God is actually holding back from her. And it was Eve eventually believing that there's no hope in God. There's only hope in the wisdom that, that can be brought on by this fruit. And so she didn't see the serpent's promises as evil. To her, it was good. And this is the first instance of temptation that we see. Yet, both Adam and Eve, they, they fell and they succumbed to temptation already. And I think if you're anything like me, I, I, I think we can relate. We, we do our best to ward off temptation, but, but still we fail, and still we succumb. And so where's the hope? Well, it's not in our strength. But as Paul declares, God is faithful. He is faithful because he provided us someone who was tempted as we were in every way but never failed and never gave in. God provided us Jesus, our high priest, who was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And because we are weak and we often give in to the allure of idols, our only hope is in Jesus. And he felt the same pull of these idols. He felt the temptation to believe that popularity will make him the greatest king, that overthrowing Roman oppression would make him the, the strongest king, that striking down every Pharisee, critic, and rebel would make every knee bow down to him. But what he did instead was to endure temptation so that he would die for our weaknesses and sins. He endured temptation so that we would have hope when we fail to endure temptation. And that's how we nullify the power of Satan, by, des by desperately turning to God when we are tempted and tested. We strip Satan of all his power because his power is derived from manipulating what is already in our hearts. And because we're in Christ, what is, and because Jesus bought us, what is already in our hearts is the beauty of Christ, is the purity of his life, and the glory of being his son. 
Satan has no power over us, but that's not because of our strength or our theology, our church attendance, or our popular friends. Satan has no power because we have Jesus living in us. And if Jesus took away Satan's ultimate power of death by resurrecting from the grave, then where is your sting, Satan? If we have Jesus, we're free. So let's fight Satan. Because we can. Let's fight him with the tools that we've been given through Jesus. Our tools are not flashy or extravagant. They're actually incredibly ordinary. It's the word of God. And maybe you're thinking, I've heard this so many times now. Fight Satan's words with God's words. But it's actually because Satan works in such ordinary ways in our day-to-day lives that we need the ordinary tools of scripture. Satan attacks the truth. He feeds us lies. He attacks our trust in God by tempting us with other things. And then tempts us to despair and, and, and to condemn ourselves. And it is against these daily attacks that God's word props up our lives. And God's word actually becomes an extraordinary tool to withstand the evil. So I plead with you, as Paul pleaded with the Corinthians, flee from idolatry and flee to Christ, because you will be tempted, both by your sinful flesh and by Satan. But neither of these determine our behavior. Let's not make the same mistakes as the Corinthians. Let's not underestimate the power of Satan and allow him to manipulate us. But also, let's not underestimate the power of Jesus. Let his faithfulness on the cross inform how we are meant to live. And I want to leave you with a the, with the prayer from a Puritan collection called The Valley of Vision. And this is an excerpt from a prayer called Weaknesses. And, this, and we'll actually end in this way, so we can bow our heads and we'll end in prayer. If thou seest in me any wrong thing encouraged, any evil desire cherished, any delight that is not thy delight, any habit that grieves thee, any nest of sin in my heart, then grant me the kiss of thy forgiveness and teach my feet to walk the way of thy commandment. Lead me safely on to the eternal kingdom, not asking whether the road be rough or smooth. I request only to see the face of him I love, to be content with, the, with bread to eat, with clothes to put on, if I can be brought to thy house in peace. God, and we, we love you. God, we love you for loving us weak people. God, and we echo the words of this prayer, and that we would be content with bread to eat, with clothes to put on, because you will bring us to your house in peace. God, and for Christ's name we pray. Amen.